So last week, we, just to recycle something, uh, we reflected on that metaphor of the chef's table, thinking about the privilege of having the experience that the master of the meal himself would would welcome us into his table. That we could go to the kitchen to see the guy in charge prepare the meal and have fellowship with him. Right, we considered how special it is to see the chef prepare his food and give us a place to taste of its riches. And we thought about how in the Lord's Supper, God welcomes us to his table to eat a meal that celebrates peace between him and his people based on the Lord Jesus' sacrifice to forgive our sins so that we taste the riches of the gospel. And we left out, though, one kind of hypothetical question for that metaphor, neglecting to ask, would the chef's table be so special if the chef never actually showed up? It actually seems that without the true presence of the chef taking a seat with you, uh, well, actually, you don't only not get his greeting and the opportunity to discuss his food, but this is just kind of a weird table crowded into into the kitchen, surrounded by busyness, distracted a bit hot, hot next to the oven, and cut off <coughs> from the other patrons at the restaurant. So what makes this arguably strange experience delightful actually is that at some point the chef himself graces you with his presence. And so then... To draw the dots, we need to contemplate how this applies to our understanding of the Lord's Supper. What would be, what would be special about this meal if the host, Jesus Christ himself, were not present in any way in it with us? If, as some have argued, the Lord's Supper is mainly, or only, sorry, is only our work, of of remembering Christ, making this meal simply and only a memorial ceremony, then there are plenty of other ways, after all, that we could invent to remember Jesus. Indeed, we remember him all the time as we worship, as we pray, as we read the scripture, as we gather under God's word preached, as you think about him throughout your uh, lives and work and whatever you might do, we remember Jesus. In that mindset, you can see, in in that understanding, why the the Lord's Supper is observed wildly, infrequently. Since we remember Jesus all the time. And don't need another way to remember him. That adds to our time in the services and logistical challenges, after all, right? Now, if the Lord's Supper is like being stuck awkwardly in the kitchen next to a hot oven with the chef never showing up. Well, we can see why some have lost their love, commitment, and gratitude concerning this meal upon which we're reflecting. But but what if the chef does show up? More specifically, what if the Lord himself is, in fact, present with us in his supper? What if we do meet him there? And 
so as again as we think about this as we have been doing we take our leaf from the shorter catechism 96 the lord's supper is a sacrament wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine according to christ's appointment his death is showed forth and worthy receivers are made not after a corporal or carnal manner but by faith made partakers of christ's body blood and all his benefits and to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. So last time we thought about the first part of that, namely how Christ's death is shown in this meal of giving and receiving bread and wine. We thought about how it's a sacrificial meal, right? Based on a, based on a previous sacrifice, sealing the peace, right? We, we have the privilege of eating a meal of communion between God and those who worthily eat. But how, also, in contrast with the Passover, that setting wherein Jesus instituted this meal, the roasted lamb is missing. Marking how the true lamb of God has once for all satisfied for our sin, leaving us never again to need a new sacrificial lamb. So we have bread and wine, no lamb on the table. Now this time, we're going to think then about this phrase, about how worthy receivers partake of Christ's body, blood, and his benefits as we eat this meal. Nothing complicated or controversial there. Uh, But we'll do the best we can. And so our main point is simply that Christ truly comes to us in the Lord's Supper. Christ truly comes to us in the Lord's Supper. And we're going to think about this in three points. Continuing, consuming, and consummating. Continuing, consuming, and consummating. First, then, continuing. And so, what we're going to do here in in this section is actually think about that little phrase about how the Lord's Supper is for our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. So that's our starting point. And if we think uh, one last time, for this series at least, about... Jesus' words as he instituted the supper. For example, uh, Luke 22, verse 20. I think we should be struck by his comment. He says, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now that, that remark that the cup is the new covenant, I think ought to take us a little bit aback. Right? In other words, the Lord's Supper embodies and encapsulates participation in the new covenant so much so that Christ can call this sign of the covenant the covenant itself. And so I think we profit to reflect upon the, the rationale, the reasoning for Jesus' claim here. Now first, I think one of the things we can see is just to, in some ways, reestablish the main point of this series. That life in the covenant is tied to our outward existence. We relate to God as whole people conducting our lives in our physical bodies and God meets us in that way. Not only our souls. And so he has tied into our participation in life with him, physical signs, outward means of grace. Just like 
God said to Abraham that circumcision was his covenant with him and his children. So now Christ identifies covenant life in the new covenant with a meal, this meal. Now our knee-jerk reaction, I think, is that this might uh, sound uh, like a, a ceremonialist point. We, we've tied Christian life uh, too to rigorously to a practice, a, a ritual in formal worship, and, and so we're squeamish. I, I actually don't think that that's the best way to think about Jesus' identification of the new covenant with the supper. So, so let me unpack that a little bit, if you'll give me the space and patience to hang on for a second. So I, I think rather, if we consider what the ordinary means of grace in general are about, well, it, the whole thing reinforces that we are constantly in need to receive from God. He has to give to us. So the means of grace are not empty ceremonies, but indeed they are rituals and activities, but ones where God gives to us by applying Christ and His benefits to us. So, I mean, the thing is, in daily life, we tend to have a routine of eating meals and and breathing because we know that We must do those activities to have nutrients we need to survive physically. And most people, if you say, uh, I need to breathe, don't say, you're just a ceremonialist. Uh, Well, obviously, yeah, you need the nutrients coming from that. In the same way, we need nutrients to survive spiritually. We must take in and receive. From God, we are dependent upon God. And the continual, constant, and frequent observation, celebration of the Lord's Supper expresses that we depend on God to give us life and all that we need. It is about, after all, as the Catechism says, giving and receiving bread and wine. It's it's not simply about the thing that you have. There's something built into the fact that you have to hold out your hand And have it received. And you need to receive it. So, uh, the supper expresses our dependence on God and, and we need Him to sustain us. And the Lord's Supper is the new covenant, not in some empty ritualistic fashion, but as God's gift to us, as the one who upholds our life of faith, giving us tokens Showing us not only that he does this for us, but that it's okay that you need to receive from God constantly. Now further, further, as we continue thinking about how we are continuing by use of the Lord's Supper, uh, we see how the Lord's Supper marks our need for ongoing nourishment. It's not just a principle receiving, it's a Need for ongoing nourishment. I, I find it uh, in, uh, interesting that people who think uh, receiving the Lord's Supper often would make it menial and take away from its significance 
tend not to feel the same about lunch every day. Uh, in fact, usually people are fairly animated if something that they receive constantly is taken away. <laughs> and, and so I, I'm not sure that that rationale actually holds. They, people who, who think that about the Lord's Supper even tend to eat every day, not having reservations about how the constant intake of physical food might take away from how special food is. They know that they simply need it. And there's a sense in which I think, this is, this is probably the, I don't think it's controversial, but I think it's the most controversial thing I'll say tonight. Uh, I think there's a sense in which celebrating the Lord's Supper infrequently is more ceremonialist than celebrating it frequently. Why? The mindset of it needs to be infrequent and thereby special turns the supper into something special, not in terms of the principle of God feeding and nourishing us, but something special experientially, ceremonially. In other words, they want it to be a striking ritual, not an ordinary occurrence of God's provision for us. And so we should resist that, I think. Frequent visits to the chef's table may regularize our experience of it, but in no way diminish that event's specialness. In fact, if you were meeting with that chef every week, and there's a week he called and said, you're not allowed to come, not I can't do it, but you're not allowed to come, in fact, that would actually be a more striking blow than once a quarter. Because as we need God to pour richly into us, constantly to continue with Him, We need to receive nourishment constantly from Him for it. And the Lord's Supper is is then about our continuing in the covenant. It is a mark of God sanctifying those people whom He's brought in. Marking how God gives to those who are dependent on Him by faith. And that brings us to our second point. Consuming. So we've thought about uh, how the Lord's Supper is unto our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. And and we've seen that the Lord's Supper is God's means of sealing how he feeds us to nourish us spiritually. It's not the only way that he does that. It just that meal seals the fact that he does it. And so our point driving forward is, is to think about the way that we are made partakers of Christ's body, blood, and all his benefits as we receive the Supper. So I think there is a, it's a little bit tedious, but I I think we need to just note very briefly, and genuinely this is brief, the, the background on the question here, because there's, there's been a number of different views about this. And so, I mean, I've already mentioned to some degree that some have argued that Christ is not present in the supper at all, making the supper merely about our memorial act for Christ. It's our work, not for God, really, not God's work for us. Now, if I can just be blunt, not that that will shock you, but uh, I don't think this view has any grounding in Scripture or or the church's historical reflection upon the Scripture. And, and I actually think that we should discard this view as the least preferable way to understand the Lord's Supper. Hardly better is the Roman Catholic view, transubstantiation, 
whereby they argue that Christ is present in the supper by having bread and wine physically become Christ's body and blood. Right now, this that aspect is significantly erroneous enough. But the aspect of the Roman view that Protestants have found basically heretical is what we discussed last week partially, is that these elements become Christ's body and blood and then are sacrificed, so propitiating God's wrath again as you eat this meal. So causing, so in other words, the Roman view is that when you eat the Mass, it turns away, the act of it turns away God's wrath. And that view undermines Christ's finished work and the Gospel's surety. So it should also be discarded. We believe that Christ is spiritually present in this meal. Spiritually. So nothing turns into anything else. But Christ gives himself to us spiritually by using bread and wine. Now two aspects inform this point from the passages we read. So first, the Bible very plainly presents God as near to his people as we eat covenant meals with him. There is a very very plain description of God's presence with his people at covenant meals. So we read Exodus 24, right? And we read how Moses made a sacrifice signifying our peace with God, one in Christ's Christ's ultimate sacrifice, which was then followed by a meal, right? That pattern's clear. And I actually think all of this is clear. We just overlook it. Verses 9 to 11, though, there, if you if you look at it again. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Now, I mean, you know that God is present if you see it. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, And he did not lay a hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. And then look at it. Look at it. They beheld God and ate and drank. There is a covenant meal, right? And previously, this has been referred to as the blood of the covenant. And in light of a covenant meal covered with the blood of the covenant, God is present as his people eat this special meal. In this, now the thing is, in this instance, in this meal, the, the only other place in all of the scripture besides, as we've read in the gospels, where the Lord Jesus refers, uh, to the Lord's Supper as, uh, the new covenant in his blood, or as some of the gospels will put it, blood of the covenant. Okay, the only other place where the phrase blood of the covenant appears is here in Exodus 24. They Now the thing is, in, in this meal, based on the blood of the covenant, God was present as they ate and drank. They were with God who provided the meal of peace for his covenant people. And I think it's undoubted that Christ referred to the blood of the covenant in reference to the cup of the Lord's Supper to signal a connection to this meal 
this one from Exodus 24, one where God was present in a meal with his people. In fact, we have to admit, God was present in a meal when Christ instituted the Lord's Supper because Jesus was there. So there's a principle of biblical evidence here, clear and I think really overt in nature, that God, in fact, is there when his people gather. And and this isn't just like in the sense that God is present everywhere or it wouldn't have talked about it. This is clearly special presence in grace, in worship. God is present when his people gather for the meal of the blood of the covenant. And so that brings us to the second thing. So we've seen evidence that God is present in the meal of the blood of the covenant. And then John 6 helps give us some direction as well as we think more about how we receive Christ's body, blood, and benefits. Now, admittedly, Jesus' bread of life discourse is not about the Lord's Supper. And so, why would this be helpful? But the thing is, when he says that we must eat his body and drink his blood, he wasn't speaking in the, sacra- in the sacraments context, and yet we find Jesus starkly saying in verses 53 to 57, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, you will also live because of me. And so then one question that we need to ask is, how do we eat Christ's body and drink his blood? Now, the thing is, I don't think we should follow Rome, as you might have guessed, and say that we do that physically. Because that's not actually what Jesus says in the passage. Right? We follow our catechism instead in saying that it's not in a corporal or carnal manner, so not like Rome says, but by faith. And that is, in fact, exactly what Jesus says in this passage. So verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. As our body has a mouth that must consume food, so our soul has a mouth called faith that must be fed with the Lord Jesus. Faith receives Christ. And as we must 
feed on and drink of him, we do by faith. He is specially present, as God always has been, in the Lord's Supper. The chef at the chef's table, the Lord at the Lord's table. And so our consuming is spiritual. That brings us to our final point. Consummating. Consummating. So the this last point is just about one very simple thing. And that's to note that the the Lord's Supper is is the fitting covenant meal actually for this age as Christ reigns from heaven, sustaining us from meal to meal to nourish us unto growth in grace. So it's a meal of sanctification. It's a meal that you need repeatedly. And it's a a meal that actually isn't complete. Or it would just happen once, right? So whereas justification is once and for all, explaining why baptism, the sign and seal of that, is once and for all, sanctification is ongoing and repeated, explaining why we have constant need for the Lord's Supper. The thing is, there will be a day of glorification. And God's abundant goodness in raising us from the dead, as Christ said here in John 6, unto new life in incorruptible bodies, will actually, that culmination will come with a culminating meal. John, same John who wrote the gospel, wrote of Christ's second coming in Revelation 19, verses 6 to 8. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made himself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the angel then told him, John, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In other words, God feeds us spiritually in the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper is a starter for the meal that is to come, the one for which we are waiting. It is our repeated rehearsal dinner for the joy of contemplating the arrival of our bridegroom. When he arrives, though, we will move on to the main course, the marriage supper itself. We will no longer be engaged to be the Lord's, as our catechism said about baptism, but we will be married to the Lord and so feast in his glorious presence in fullness. And so this continuing meal that facilitates our consuming of Christ by faith is driving towards a consummating meal where our peace with God will be fully known and fully displayed with all of Christ's benefits given to us in full measure so that we might ever be at the Lord's table, celebrating His love for us as clear as day in the face of the risen Christ, once given for us to make satisfaction for our sin, constantly given to us for our nourishment.
and then forever being with us as our faithful God who makes his dwelling and his dining among his people. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that even as we are not taking this meal tonight, we ask, O Lord, that we nonetheless might feed on the Lord Christ by faith. That that meal is meant to seal a particular action of faith, receiving to be nourished by Christ. Yet we we ask that you help us do that, even as we reflect upon the meal that you have left us for this age of your plan for your kingdom. And so we pray that in weeks ahead, as we will come to this table again in the near future, that you might help us to appreciate it all the more, that we are dependent on you in a beautiful way, that you have not given us these sacraments as works for us to perform, but as gospel gifts to remind us that it is good and pleasing to depend on the living God who has shown us your grace in the Lord Jesus. We pray that next time we eat, we would eat with rejoicing, knowing that Christ himself is with us in this meal. But as we have been instructed that we need to eat his body and drink his blood, we do so by believing in him. And we are increased in our believing in him as we receive that meal that you nourish our souls with. And so we pray that as we go into the the week before us, that you might remind us of all the times that we have eaten this supper, but also that all the times we've eaten it point forward to when we will gather fully, not at this simple meal, but at the elaborate feast when our relationship with Christ is consummated. He raises us from the grave. Help the prospect of that hope to make us fearless, to make us comforted, to make us established and even delighting in all that you are and all that you have done for us. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.